Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. This is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have, a Dave, I have David Corey. He's a professor of medicine, uh, immunology, allergy, and rheumatology at Baylor College of Medicine down in the uh, Houston area. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about allergies and things like that. And, you know, I probably sound like I have some, and I, I probably do. And I'm sure thousands and thousands and millions of people have them as well. So, David, thanks for coming. Oh, pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, what, what interests you, you know, when you first got into this, why were you attracted to studying allergies and rheumatology and immunology? Sure. Uh, so my my background is I I'm a, I'm a physician. Uh, my degree is MD, uh, and I um, just naturally gravitated uh, in terms of my clinical interests uh, into lung disease. So the lung has a lot of interesting diseases that uh, captured my imagination. And once I went through my training, uh, I, I realized that. Um, it, yeah, in addition to just being intrinsically interesting, you know, you face, you quickly realize as a pulmonologist uh, that you face a big problem uh, when you start having your own patients. And that, and that is people with very common illnesses um, like asthma, chronic sinusitis, you know, an inflammatory condition of the upper airway, um, and many other related conditions, uh, the, the, the best textbook uh, and even advanced tr- kind of treatments that you're taught as a, as a pulmonary fellow um, don't always work. In fact, uh, the more severe the disease is, the less likely the standard or even the advanced treatments are, are going to work. So my, my curiosity sort of evolved from just a general thing to, to wondering, well, wait, hang on, what's really going on with these people uh, with these kinds of conditions? Uh, and what can we do um, to improve their, uh, their, uh, our ability to diagnose, treat, and, and that kind of thing? So what kind of conditions are you focused on? So uh, in my clinic uh, currently, so we focus on uh, advanced um, inflammatory airway disease. Uh, mostly uh, that ends up being uh, severe life-threatening asthma, but, but we also see very severe advanced chronic sinusitis or chronic rhinosinusitis. Um, but we also see folks that have smoked uh, cigarettes their, uh, most of their lives. So they have things like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and or emphysema. Uh, but then become complicated uh, by uh, things that give them an allergic character. By allergic, what I mean is, uh, you know, they, they can show um, uh, sensitization to pollens in the environment or to molds, um, and they um, have a particular character of the the mucus that people frequently cough up with that have these kinds of conditions. Uh, it's they have a particular pattern of inflammation, including a, a specific type of inflammatory cell called in the eosinophil. So they have this eosinophilic um, um, bronchitis uh, is the term that we use for that. Um, and, and so uh, we, we, we collect uh, patients with diverse kinds of lung disease, but that have either have a pure form of this uh, allergic character of inflammation, or they have traditionally non-allergic diseases like, like emphysema, but maybe interstitial lung disease as well. But then they develop this allergic character 
so they all wind up in our clinic um, and we uh, diagnose and treat them uh, using techniques that we've learned slowly uh, about over the past 10 years uh, on the research side. A lot of this work began in mice and we have done the bench to bedside thing, adapting what we've learned in mice uh, back to our patients. And it's, it's, uh, it's been a very, uh, it's been absolutely um, uh, uh, incredibly rewarding, not just for me, but I think for our patients uh, to be able to, and it's been a great privilege for me to, to work with an incredibly talented group of folks uh, putting this research together and getting to really what we think is the core uh, uh, problem that, um, uh, that uh, is underlying these, these different. Well, what, what, how do allergies form a backdrop to people's lives? And if they have these serious conditions, what are, I mean, are they now more sensitive to allergies? Uh, does it really worsen their condition? Like what's the interplay there? Sure. So, so, you know, allergies uh, probably means is a kind of a, uh, broad term, it probably means different things to different people. But uh, in, in general, uh, so allergies means that you're, you're making a, an inflammatory reaction um, to something that comes from the environment in a way that impacts your health. So allergies can, can take on many forms. Uh, the, the, the one we were just talking about, the one that a lot of people are suffering from in the, in the, south, uh, in the southwest Texas area, uh, are, are, again, the general term is allergies, but uh, so you're making a specific type of, of allergic immune response to, to, to common pollens in the air. So in the winter, this could be, you know, it could be cedar right now is grass pollens. And there's a number of different weeds that are blooming now, but there's also some tree pollens that are in the air. And there's always mold uh, spores that are in the air. All of these are things that people can become uh, sensitized to. So when you inhale them, you now develop a, a, a reaction that can vary in strength depending on your genetics and how much exposure you've actually had and, and other uh, medical conditions or drugs you may be taking that could influence exactly how strongly you react. But some of that uh, reaction can, can be simply sneezing, itchy, watery eyes, runny nose, to, uh, to nasal obstruction, inability to breathe through the night. If you have sleep apnea, uh, then that actually becomes a, a health uh, concern of, of significant magnitude. If that, if your CPAP device, your, your positive pressure breathing device, it helps you breathe at night. If you have the sleep apnea, you know, it's not going to work so well. If you have bad allergies uh, and you can't get that air uh, at night when you're asleep, uh, when you need it. Um, and then things can progress uh, very, very significantly beyond that. So if you develop a systematic, a systemic allergy, if you will, to things like pollens and particularly bee venoms, if you get stung several times by hornets, honeybees, a, a common occupational hazard if you're a farmer uh, in Texas and elsewhere, uh, then that can be a life-threatening uh, situation in which you might develop anaphylaxis with the next bee stings. Anaphylaxis refers to um, a systemic reaction in which your uh, blood pressure drops and your, your airways close up so you can't breathe and, and you typically pass out because you, you have no blood pressure. Uh, a perfect you know, recipe for death, as you can imagine. Um, perhaps that is the most severe form of hypersensitivity reaction. Um, that is allergic yeah. reactions that people can get into. Um, well, so quick quick question here. Um, <clears throat> what are people's reactions like when they encounter mold versus tree or grass pollens versus other allergens, you know, pets, is there no specific signal depending on the type of, you know, thing that's bothering you or are they specific in some ways? Uh, so I think you're asking, so, so yeah, so what's the kind of relationship between molds and some of these other things? So it's, it's certainly possible that 
again, based on your genetic makeup in particular, that uh, simply inhaling things like cedar pollen or grass pollen, you can become allergic to these things. Most of the time that does not happen because our immune systems are smart enough to, to recognize that pollens um, are, are and uh, as you mentioned, dog and other uh, animal danders and um, uh, maybe the, uh, uh, there's things that, 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 that live in our households, including dust mites, cockroaches. Well, those things, you know, die and disintegrate and their dust is in everybody's house and we are always inhaling those things. It is not pleasant to talk about these things, but they're not intrinsically dangerous either. And our immune systems typically understand that and they don't go crazy and, and, and give us these terrible reactions. Um, but um, but the fungus uh, uh, is quite different. So that's the one thing that we can become allergic to that actually is a source of infection. So the, uh, the fungus spores that are in everybody's house uh, and they're always in the air. We, we're breathing in fungal spores with every breath. Um, you know, th this is the one thing that can actually take up shop, if you will, in your airway, upper and lower, and grow, producing a condition we now call airway mycosis. Uh, it's a, it's not a, immediately a life-threatening situation. The fungus is simply growing along your airway, um, but that growth uh, can lead to a number of, of interesting complications. It, it, it the, you can become intrinsically, uh, you know, reactive to the fungus in the same way that you can become reactive to pollens. Uh, and so, instead of you know, if if you just have a, a, a cedar pollen allergy. Uh, you're only going to be symptomatic in the winter. So, it, you know, you have a season for that, right? That's true for, for many different pollen-related allergies and allergic conditions. But if you're allergic to the mold that's growing in your airway, well, you know, it's there all the time. And so you're always going to have a problem. And those problems could range from simple allergies to severe sinusitis to life-threatening asthma. Asthma, of course, a disease in which your airways constrict and they can fill up with mucus and fibrin clots. Uh, a, a, a situation called plastic bronchitis, uh, which can be um, fatal. In fact, the, the, the most re common reason for death and asthma is because of this mucus uh, and, and fibrin clot filling uh, process, which basically uh, you can't breathe at all. Uh, is, that, that, is that progressive with asthma? Like if you have um, asthma attack and it resolves, is that stuff still there in your lungs or is there some remnants of its damage left there? And if you have an asthma attack again and again and again, what happens yes, to you over time? That's, that's a great question. So, um, so in the studies that have been done, uh, in which the airways have been sampled uh, in people that have asthma, looking for things like fibrin and mucus. Um, so it's it's the the it's uh, it's hard to say absolute certainty here, but it, it seems that if, if people have asthma, um, that they always have some degree of excess mucus and fibrin. A clot deposition in, in their airways, you know, uh, much more than, you know, people that don't have asthma. So it's, it's sort of a, a slow burn thing. It's always there. Uh, but yes, you can have these acute uh, attacks that uh, in which a lot more mucus and clot is being formed. And that's, the, and that's what's the, really the physical basis for the, the airway um, asthma attack that brings people to the emergency and gets them admitted to hospitals and that kind of thing. So there, there is that deposition deal, but there's also a constriction phenomenon. So with the airways of people that have asthma are hypercontractile, that is in response to many different kinds of things, uh, their airways uh, can constrict. Um, um, and, and, and in addition to just the inhaling the pollens, other things like just simply perfumes, hot air, cold air, dry air, many different things can trigger uh, uh, an episode of airway constriction, which can also produce that shortness of breath and, and bring folks in, into the emergency room. How of um, 
scientists observe that people become conditioned either in a good way or a bad way or more sensitive or less sensitive to, you know, various insults, you know, continual exposure to pet dander, continual exposure to living in Austin, breathing in cedar every year, et cetera. What happens? Um, so, yes. Yeah, so uh, certainly continuous exposure to these kinds of things is, is definitely a risk factor for developing those allergies. But there, but, but part of our research has uncovered is that there, there's an additional factor that drives those allergies in addition to just simply regular exposure. Again, things like dog danders and, you know, uh, pollens are intrinsically harmless, right? They, they don't have any, there's nothing about them that, 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 uh, that is harmful per se, but we do develop these harmful reactions. And that has always been the paradox with allergic diseases. And again, some of the basis of my interest in these conditions. So what we've learned on the research side is that it's that going back to that airway mycosis. So many, 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 many people um, have airway mycosis. Um, and it's, it's having that fungus in the airway that drives the allergy. Uh, as it turns out. So we can demonstrate that in a formal sense in the laboratory for using mice uh, as, a, as our test subjects, um, but we can also demonstrate that in people so that if we take somebody that is highly allergic, again, I'm just using random examples, but cedar pollen, because we've used that before, um, and, uh, but they also have airway mycosis, which we can demonstrate by culturing the, you know, the mucus that people cough up. Um, and then if we treat that, um, that fungal infection, that airway mycosis, uh, with with our usual antifungal medications, and and are successful in getting rid of that airway mycosis, then the the sensitization to the, the cedar pollen, even though the cedar pollen or whatever is not going away itself, we can see that the sensitization goes down and and off and and, and it may very well disappear completely. Okay, well, so I mean, have we figured out how to modulate it so that allergy sufferers who live in an area or an environment where they're going to have these persistent insults can fare better? You know, does it always have to be medicine to try to beat it down the reaction or is there a way to condition people positively so that it affects them less and less? Um, sure. So the, um, a lot of this is, is still uh, in the drawing boards, but let me try, maybe try to walk you through some scenarios that we're working with. So first of all, in addition to the usual over-the-counter drugs, antihistamines, and nasal sprays and, and, and nasal um, you know, salt water uh, washing, that kind of thing, uh, to, to treat these conditions. Uh, for more than 100 years, uh, a standard therapy on, uh, for allergists to use uh, is immunotherapy, um, so, so allergy shots. So basically you're taking uh, extracts of the things that you're allergic to, and then uh, what, the, what the allergists are, are effectively doing is they're vaccinating you by injecting them underneath your skin on a weekly or monthly basis, depending on the on where you stand in the course of, of that kind of treatment, which can, which can be... Uh, uh, quite long uh, in duration, up to several years. Uh, but, the, but the idea, again, is that you're basically vaccinating uh, against uh, these things. And in many people, that that is successful. It, it does diminish the uh, how just, just how badly you react uh, to these things in the environment. Uh, and and in, in some cases, you can completely eliminate uh, those allergies, again, just by taking this vaccination approach. But for many people, and, 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 and maybe this is something special uh, for the Texas area because there's just so many things to be allergic to, uh, but, but the more things that you're allergic to, the less likely immunotherapy is going to work. Uh, so what do you do with somebody that's, that has, you know, reacting to 20 different things? Um, so uh, maybe a better way of, of going about this, and again, here's where we're still on the drawing board, but is maybe uh, first determining, do you have that complication of airway mycosis? And if so, uh, maybe getting rid of that airway mycosis. So the treatment then is, is more of a, an antifungal approach, so taking antibiotics to kill fungi. 
to lower that that sensitization to the point where you stop reacting. So we have seen that 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 does seem to be true uh, in the clinic in, in people that we we are treating. Uh, their fungal infections, not necessarily just because they have allergies, but because the fungus is, is something that's, that's causing something much more serious, like life-threatening asthma. So, uh, but they happen to also have those allergies. So we've noticed that in, in some of our patients that the allergies goes, goes away at the same time, the asthma. Um, so that's got us thinking that maybe in the future uh, that this is something that we can study in a formal uh, sense, that is giving the antifungals just treat uh, the allergies as a, it may be an alternative uh, way of treating particularly those that are not uh, responding to traditional therapies like immunotherapy. Hmm. So what, what clears up what? If you work on someone's asthma, do the allergies clear? If you work on their allergies, do the asthma clear? You know, I mean, what's, how do you intervene depending on the circumstance of the person? Sure. So, uh, so uh, immunotherapy can be effective in, in patients who have asthma. Um, uh, we don't typically do immunotherapy if you just have asthma. So uh, immunotherapy is typically done if you have allergies, that is the itchy, watery eyes, uh, runny nose, sneezing, uh, postnasal drip, th those kinds of symptoms, uh, in addition to asthma. Uh, but in, And so if we can get that, that allergy component under control, typically, but not always, typically the asthma will get better at the same time. Um, so, um, but, but primarily immunotherapy is, is given uh, for, for the allergy component. Um, so in, when it comes to the antifungal thing, we, we routinely give antifungals, uh, but we reserve that for, um, for more or less life-threatening or, or very serious um, infections, let's say, do, do we've proven due to cultures or due to fungi involving the upper airway causing sinusitis or uh, severe life-threatening um, asthma. Um, and again, we, we, we've noticed that the allergies can improve in some people who, who you know, we're treating for, let's say, asthma, but they also have allergies at the same time. Um, so, anyway, so, so look, uh, moving forward, it, it may be uh, everyone's going to be a little bit different. Their, their circumstances uh, dictate exactly uh, the initial route that we that we choose. But increasingly, we're thinking that maybe antifungals uh, could be an, a frontline, first choice therapy, particularly those with more um, serious uh, medical conditions. You know, there's some hesitancy there uh, in applying antifungals um, widely um, without detailed study because uh, there's several reasons. These, these antifungal drugs are typically expensive. Uh, a lot of insurance companies won't cover them if it's being used for an indication that's not been formally approved by the Food and Drug Administration. They also can be quite toxic. Uh, and they interfere with other medications. So if you, for based on, depending on what the antifungal you wish to use, that antifungal may not be compatible with the other medications patients are taking. So you, uh, that becomes very tricky, trying to change medications that you may, may, not, may not necessarily be qualified to change. So you have to work with other physicians to, to work with, to change those medications or get them stopped, that kind of thing. So it can be, it can be difficult starting antifungals and keeping patients safe while they're on them. So you don't want to just do this, you know, willy-nilly. Well, again, what I guess we have a mycobiome, so an antifungal could disturb that, and maybe there's not nearly enough research into what, what happens with our mycobiome. So is that why antifungals are, you shouldn't just take them for no reason or for too long, or, you know, what are the other reasons I'm not seeing? So, yeah, sure, we can talk about that. So there, yeah, so there's a microbiome, right, which is uh, typically people use that term to refer to the bacteria, right, that, that, that are in our bodies, and there's no question that bacteria are absolutely beneficial in many, many regards. So we, we rely on bacteria to provide 
a number of different nutrients, including vitamins, right? Um, but the same, and the, there is a mycobiome, uh, not micro, but myco, which is referring to the fungal component of, of, the, of, the micro, of the total body of microorganisms that are, that are on our bodies. There's no question that we, we have a mycobiome, but, uh, but there, there actually is no evidence that that mycobiome is, at, is actually beneficial. Um, there is, uh, there's unlimited studies showing the harm that, that, that fungi can do wherever they may be. So they could be along our, in our airway, of course, they, they're on our skin, uh, they're in our gastrointestinal tract, and there's increasing evidence that they're in places you would never have expected them, uh, like the brain. Um, so uh, fungi are likely in many, many, many different organs, uh, including our pancreas you know, and other organs of our gastrointestinal tract, etc. Um, and, uh, but when they've been found, um, they've been often linked to various diseases, uh, including cancers, inflammatory disorders of all kinds. Again, if they're in the airway, they're very likely to be linked to any allergic process involving that airway, including asthma, sinusitis, and even allergies, as, as we've already discussed. Uh, so there's abundant and there's, there's unequivocal evidence of fungal harm being part of our my microbiome. But there is literally no evidence that they that they have some sort of equivalent, absolutely essential, good role uh, that 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 example that bacteria play. That that those data just do not exist. So what um, antifungals, from what I've heard, I mean, you know, not having really taken them except for maybe like athlete's foot, uh, sure, sure. they seem to work pretty well. Is um, again, what yeah. what's the downside? Are there certain people that because of their history with asthma or allergies that they're very uh, hair trigger reactive to them or, you know, I mean, are they, you know, does it, does it matter the season in which you take them? You know, what if um, there's a part of the season where you're very allergic to something and you're taking an antifungal, does it affect you in one way versus another part of the season, let's say winter, where for the most part, there's not much allergies and, you know, does it work better then? You know, so not necessarily. So is, is, as long as it's as the physician has done their due diligence and, and, and really uh, found that, that, in fact, um, uh, airway mycosis is there uh, and, and, and therefore is, is potentially linked to the underlying allergic disorder, you, you, you can, uh, it's appropriate, I think, to treat at any time of the year, regardless of the status of the sensitivity to the, to the allergen. Uh, that may be a secondary consequence of having that airway mycosis. So, but there are certainly downsides and, and side effects, uh, as we talked about earlier uh, with antifungals. There's, there's, there's some very significant, potentially life-threatening side effects that are, that are possible. So you have to monitor your patients very, very carefully. But there's inter interference with other drugs, is a, in, which can also be life-threatening. So that has to be monitored and planned for very, very carefully. There's some other interesting issues you can get into. Uh, again, it's probably not related to, to season, but uh, th there's, a, there's a curious phenomenon that's, that's been linked to treatment of many different infectious diseases. That the, the first such descriptions were in the 1910s and 20s. Uh, first, uh, the first treatments uh, that came along that, that were reasonably effective against syphilis, uh, which is, of course, a bacterial infection. Um, so the first time you treat uh, syphilis, for example, with penicillin, uh, especially, uh, you can get a, a febrile uh, debilitating reaction with a lot of joint pains, and uh, and, and it can be it can be life threatening uh, on its own. Uh, it, it was eventually linked to simply a whole bunch. Of, imagine a whole bunch of you know of the organism that causes the syphilis 
dying instantly in your body well it, these things are going to release a whole bunch of things that your body is going to react to and, and and that's ultimately what 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 is probably the cause of this syndrome which has a long name it's called the jerish Herxheimer reaction, named after the original physicians who, who described it. But something similar is probably happening um, in, in a subset of our patients, maybe maybe 10 to 20%, who have a high fungal burden, a lot of airway mycosis, that is. And so we'll treat them with an antifungal. And within the first, uh, oh, I'd say, three weeks, uh, they can start showing evidence of something that looks an awful lot like a Jerish Herxheimer reaction. So they can develop joint pains, uh, 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 hives. Uh, maybe if they have asthma, well, maybe their asthma will get a whole lot worse. It's a transient thing. They're over it in a week or so, and we can get through that by giving them anti-inflammatories like you know steroids and that kind of thing. But but again, one of one of the other hazards uh, of treating um, mycosis. So we we can't just be doing this you know willy willy nilly randomly. It has to be done in a, in, a, in a carefully controlled way and under careful medical uh, supervision. So what what are some of the big questions that you're trying to answer with your work? So great, yeah. So, uh, and the question I always get in my in my talks, for example, is, all right, well, you just said that you know fungus is everywhere, and most people recognize that it's in, it's in every breath that we take, and yet only a small percentage of the population, um, all breathing in the same kind of fungus, develops these serious airway mycosis related disorder disorders like asthma, chronic sinusitis, and and, and there's quite a, a list of others that are not as common. Uh, so why is that? So that's one of the things we're pursuing now. Our hypothesis, uh, our main theory as to, as to what's going on is it's probably, uh, there's there's probably two different things. Uh, and it's, as with every medical condition, it's always a genes by environment sort of thing. So in, in some people, as you as you well know, Houston gets uh, gets knocked off the map every now and then with a big hurricane or a big tropical storm. You don't have to worry about that so much in Austin, uh, but these things come in and they tear up a lot of houses, pull off roofs, or, or simply flood the dwelling. Uh, and then the, depending on how well that remediation is done, um, would, would, um, if it's not done well, then the folks move back into what's effectively a mold trap. And so if the mold is, if, if it's not already growing, if it, if it, if it wasn't re- remediated well, it, it will soon begin to take over the house. So now you're living in, a, in an extremely high mold environment. You're, you're, you're inhaling very high concentrations of molds, spores, but also potentially the toxins that molds leave behind when they grow in organic matter like wood and paper. Uh, and so you can develop. Oh, very, oh, go ahead. Right? Go ahead. Yeah, you can develop. You can develop very, very serious allergic uh, disease uh, simply on the basis of, of inhaling just too much. There's not a genetic issue here in many of these people. It's just they're just overexposure. So the treatment there is just getting them out of out of their houses. Uh, and getting them into a clean dwelling. And that's actually a significant part of my job as a clinician is to, is to exactly sleuth out that kind of environmental issue. And if, it's, if that's the problem, then, then we work with, through the Veterans Administration to get, because uh, I work at a Veterans Administration hospital here, here at Houston, and we get folks out of those dwellings and into uh, better circumstances. But what's actually much more common is probably a genetic issue. So what we're working on currently on the research side is trying to understand the uh, there's probably some issues on the genetic side that predispose people uh, to having more of a problem with this airway mycosis. So in particular, people, it's a, it ends up being probably an immune system related issue in which people are simply are not able to fight off that, that fungus that we're all getting. So we're, anyway, we're all getting infected by fungus through our airways, um, but most of us can fight it off and it doesn't end up creating a problem for, for the vast majority of us. It's just that 10% or so that can't quite eliminate the fungus that actually 
sets up shop and begins growing and expanding uh, in these in these uh, in these folks' airways. Uh, and so those are the people that get into trouble with severe asthma, sinusitis. Uh, and we want to know in the future what are the genetic issues. So what are the specific genes that are affected, uh, and and what are the, what are uh, getting down to the very nitty gritty. What are the actual um, uh, changes in, in the DNA code, if you will, that lead to uh, these kinds of problems. So we're actually working on that right now, and we hope to have some data in the next two years or so on that. Yeah, um, in terms of uh, living space, I don't know, are there simple tests to see if a place has been remediated or if you suspect that you're living in you know, poor ambient conditions, or is it expensive and complicated to do? It, it's it's all the it's all the above. There, there are services that are available uh, that can inspect your house and assess for mold contamination. That's typically expensive. Uh, most people can't afford that, but there's another huge problem. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, companies that are not well trained in this kind of thing. So there are wonderful companies that do an absolutely great job, but they're probably drowned out by all the copycat companies that don't really know what they're doing. They'll they'll, they'll do some work and tell you that maybe that you've got a lot of mold uh, and they'll charge you a lot of money. But, but in fact, the data are, are, that they come up with are, are probably worthless uh, in many cases. So the, there's a, there's a, there's a problem. There's a huge problem uh, with this kind of thing. And it's very hard to know as an individual, um, what is the right company to, to, to contact um, to, to fully assess your house. So here's what I advise uh, my patients is to probably, it's not worth going to that kind of uh, expense and risk, not knowing who is really reliable out there, uh, but learn to trust or, or have, or maybe it's a spouse or somebody else in the family uh, has a good sense of smell, to learn to trust your sense of smell. So if you leave your house and then come back a few hours later, open that door, what's the first thing you smell? Do you, does it smell like clean air or do you smell a mustiness, a moldiness that almost everyone recognizes as you know as a as a stale damp moldy musty kind of smell that um hard to describe exactly what that is but most people recognize that that odor our noses are actually incredibly sensitive in detecting mold moldy environments if you if you detect that moldiness you need to remediate uh, there is a problem and you have to find it and you have to fix it um, and so if, if it's if it's if that's where you are and you don't really know where it's coming from, you just notice that the smell is there, then you, it may make sense to, to hire a professional, perhaps a, a highly reputable, highly recommended air conditioner company is a good place to start to inspect those vents uh, and the duct work and make sure that there's not mold growing in the air conditioning system itself. And that's a very, very common problem and a very, very common source um, for mold. The other thing, of course, are leaky uh, pipes. Um, if, if it wasn't an actual flooding event due to a hurricane, uh, then leaky pipes uh, connected to air conditioning units, or particularly window units, or just old houses with leaky water pipes um, uh, that are not easy to find. They might be hidden behind walls. Um, so having companies come in that with, with, with excellent reputations to help sort that thing out would be would be indicated. Again, if if you um, if you if you notice that 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 smell of moldiness or mustiness in the house. Yeah, I've had a service come and do the air conditioning events or events and, you know, blow stuff through them. And it seems like the air is fresher and you notice a difference. And, you know, no, yeah, super. I've had what I think was like a, a rat that died in my closet and it smelled for months. And you know, I didn't want to break open the wall and get to it. But, you know, I'm sure everyone listening has had uh, all kinds of weird things happen 
Absolutely. It's a very, very common issue. So, so in addition to critters, you know, getting between the walls and passing away, right? And then the water, any, any kind of water leak for any kind of length of time, that will lead to mold overgrowth. And, and if it's in your house, then it just becomes an enormous, enormous problem. It doesn't matter if you have a genetic predisposition. That mold grown in there is just, is one of the, is just one of the worst things that, that, to force a human uh, to have to endure. Um, but, and again, if you have a mold contaminated house, you, you have to, you know, you have to live in that environment. And it's just, uh, it's a big, big, big health problem. Um, so I can so, you know, Clearly, one a huge message is just is is, is that you have to be very aggressive in getting getting rid of that mold and keeping it out. Yeah, I slept with a humidifier for a period of time, and you know it starts to affect your throat. And I've had to you know wash it out with vinegar and blow it through there and clean it, and biofilms form in there. And you know, I open the window every day, and you know, there's a lot to it. I mean, I, I'm sure building health and indoor air quality is is huge in, in what you do. I don't know how much. Uh, you know, you deal with it, but it's a, absolutely a huge issue. Just a quick tip for for maybe your your listeners, uh, if you're if you're thinking about um, uh, how how to manage your house to keep that mold out. Um, so keep the humidity out, as as you mentioned. Um, humidity is is a huge can be a huge problem. Um, you you cannot uh, you should not exceed uh, much above you know maybe forty five at the most fifty percent in terms of humidity in your house. So if your if your air conditioner um, is not removing humidity to to, to under fifty percent, uh, you might have a problem. Certainly if you're at sixty percent or higher, you've got a huge huge problem, and you need dehumidifiers in that in that case. Again, if your air conditioner alone is not sufficient to remove that humidity, of course in Austin and drier parts, you know. Maybe the issue is that you know you, there, there's <laughs> there's not enough. Maybe you might be under 35 percent, which would be exceptionally dry, and that creates its own set of medical problems, right? So you might need. And that's to, what you know, I was going to ask you: is is um for someone living in a house, you know, during the day and when they're awake, below 50 percent sounds good, but when they're asleep at night, it's probably okay to temporarily go above 50 so that your mucous membranes don't dry out. You don't have problems there, right? Like what? What would be the ideal cycle to you? Do you think that cycling is okay or not? Uh, don't recommend cycling uh, because, again, if you're, if you're getting much above 50, certainly getting up to 60%, you're, you're going to be – even if it's transient, it's a few hours a day, you're going to be promoting that, that mold growth. Um, it's just you don't ever want to get much above 50%. Um, so most people for 50% uh, can sleep very comfortably um, in that. Uh, in that range, uh, uh, but perhaps some people, uh, maybe maybe that's that's that is too dry f- uh, for some people. Um, I, I personally have not run into that. <laughs> maybe you're the, maybe you're the first, uh, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend generally cranking up the whole house humidity uh, much above fifty uh, percent for for any 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 length of time. Pretty narrow window, and then you know in the winter the water just can't hold nearly as much humidity, so. I mean, what do you recommend? Do you think people should get like hygrometers in their house and try yes. to dial in the humidity to a certain level? And if so, it seems like a very narrow range. Absolutely. I, I recommend everybody get a hygrometer. Uh, to, you sh- everybody should know what their humidity is uh, in their house. And you, and you might need to move that hygrometer to different rooms because it could vary from room to room. Um, and so you should know pretty much your whole house. How does that humidity uh, fare, uh, and, and particularly in different times of year? And so again, if you if you're finding it's getting you know upwards of sixty percent for sure, but but I would be concerned if you're if even if you're in the upper fifties, 
um, that you might have uh, a problem over time uh, with that mold overgrowth, and which would be a, a pretty pretty uh, it could be a very serious health problem, uh, depending on the on the individual. Uh, and so, yes, you may have to take action then to to maintain that humidity at the, at the right level under under let's say fifty fifty five percent, let's say um, for, uh, for in, in different times of year. Okay, but there's no protocols you know of, even brief cycling. Like, you know, like, I don't know, you're stuffed up, you take a hot shower with steam and it seems to help for 15 minutes, you know, or are there, are there any protocols you know of where you go really dry, where you go really humid for a short period of time, or you don't recommend it? Uh, no, I, I don't, I don't recommend it. Uh, it, it that, that kind of extreme cycling over short periods, uh, can lead to, uh, is, is very hard for, for the body to adjust to. So, um, so that's just, so, so let, let's just take up, uh, the example we were with earlier. So let's just say that, uh, at a certain time of year, you find that, uh, a humidity, relative humidity of 50% is maybe a little bit too dry. But if you, if you were to maintain that level of humidity, your body will adjust and, and you should be acclimate to that and become comfortable with it. Um, so I, I actually recommend that, that you, you, a, you know what your humidity is at different times of the year uh, in different parts of the house. And then you do everything that you can to keep it, uh, to, to keep it at a constant level. Um, and so, and again, it, you, you want to shoot for under uh, 50 uh, 5% or so, I, perhaps ideally even under 50%, but that's hard to achieve, uh, particularly in Houston where it's so humid. I'm guessing that would be much easier to do in, in Austin, uh, but but generally under 50, uh, 50 55% uh, and try to maintain that however you, you need to. Sometimes that may mean turning on the dehumidifier, maybe, it would, but in other times of year, maybe that means turning on the humidifier. Right, so but the, so consistency and, and, and as constant uh, humidity as you can is is the best way probably to to deal with this uh, uh, long term. I was just thinking if you if you do you know I'm not saying to do it and it sounds like it's bad but if you do this cycling what you might be doing is encouraging mold formation or fungal formation then if you suddenly shock it with low humidity maybe it goes into spore form stays there and waits for humidity to come back I mean who knows but. Just a thought that crossed my mind. <laughs> so you sound like you've had some mycology training. So, so that's exactly right. So when you stress, the, you get the fungus growing, and then you stress it, and that's the case, you're drying out. It's certainly one way of doing that. They will sporulate it. So you may be encouraging spore formation and, and subsequent uh, you know, um, mold, uh, enhancing you know, the moldy conditions. So, again, cy- cycling is something for many reasons. Uh, cycling is, is probably not uh, the best uh, in, in anyone's best interest. Okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for uh, people to find out more about your work? And if they're local to you, I guess in the Houston Metro, maybe they can come visit or, you know, again, how should people find out more? Uh, sure. So I, I so I'm on the uh, the, the web page uh, at Baylor College of Medicine, and my, my contact uh, information is there. Um, if you're a veteran uh, and you have you think you have an allergic uh, disorder or, or, or an airway disorder, immunological disorder of any kind, so we, we um, I'm I'm uh, that is, uh, our clinic would be delighted to see you. We we are restricted to um, to just the um, to just the veterans population. However, uh, working with my other colleagues at Baylor College of Medicine, we have an outstanding um, allergy and an immunology clinic uh, available through the Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center. Uh, I don't, I do not work there in that clinic, but I'm certainly affiliated with it, and I work closely with my colleagues with complex um, um, allergic and, and immunological uh, conditions, Dr. Sanjeev Sur and Evan Lee, 
and uh, we would be happy to see you at any of these venues. Um, uh, should, should you have a, a condition, if you have a, a research condition, just drop me an email or whatever. We, we'd be happy to uh, uh, to take the conversations further. Well, very good, David. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Hey, Richard, been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.